Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. John 14, verses 15 through 26. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit that is to come, not as a thing, not as an object. We say the Holy Spirit. He's referring to it as Him, as the person of God. This is personal, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you, but will be in you. So, what He's saying, the Holy Spirit is at work among you right now. The Holy Spirit is at work all through the Old Testament, the Spirit of God. But He's saying, what is to come is that that same Spirit is going to reside, will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Now why does he say this? It's because he's getting ready to ascend into the heavens. He's going to leave them, but he said, I'm not going to leave you without guidance. I will come back to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. I'm going away, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whosoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will come to him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, this is a different Judas, we only see him two or three times in Scripture. He's either the son or the brother of James. Said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things have I spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus is preparing His people for His departure, is what He is doing here. And He's doing so in, by framing His return through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, one more time, Your Word is so precious to us. It is our hope. It is our roadmap to salvation. We thank You for it. We handle it very carefully this morning. We handle Your Word with reverence and godly fear and uh, with appropriate uh, reverence toward you. Lord, we don't handle these things lightly, but we ask you this morning that you would minister in this place, talk to us through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I mentioned it before, but I really want to, I want us to understand this. I do think this is important. That every 
major doctrine idea in the Bible that we talk about is framed and set within the story of Scripture. Scripture is a lot of stories put together. When you start reading, and I've been reading uh, a lot through Genesis, I've been reading some things in Genesis that I haven't read in a while, uh, refreshing myself on some of those Old Testament stories, and the first thing that jumps out to me is how imperfect the people were. Abraham is very imperfect. Uh, he makes a lot of mistakes. Noah makes some mistakes. They're just ordinary, flawed men who were used by God, but it's all in the context of story. And Genesis is just one story after another. And in the Bible, all the, you know, read Joshua and Judges and Ruth and First and Second Samuel and the book of the Kings and the book of the Chronicles, all in all, the Gospels, it's just story after story. I, I, I don't know if anyone's ever counted how many individual stories there are, but it has to be in the hundreds of stories that are in the Bible. This is how Outside of Scripture, we know that ideas are communicated best through story. Traditions that are handed down long before we recorded things by writing them down, they were handed down through story. And so all of this gospel truth is set within stories that make up one big story in the Bible. The Bible is one grand story that tells of God's creation, the fall of man, and then God's restoration of that creation. In the beginning, God dwelled with mankind in the Garden of Eden, and we cannot comprehend what that relationship was like. The Bible says that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. There was a, a close relationship here that was severed by sin. And the Garden of Eden is the original temple because a temple is anywhere that God meets man or heaven meets earth. That's what the idea of a temple is. So we should think of Eden not just as a garden, but as a garden temple. And the image there is unmistakable. Even when the people of God in the Old Testament build a physical temple, the imagery within there, a lot of that references back to the Garden of Eden because it's where heaven meets earth. And Adam and Eve function as a type of priest because they are the caretakers of this garden. So we, we see this, that Eden was a sacred place. Adam and Eve serve as mediators between heaven and earth. And this is what makes their sins so much more tragic, is they weren't just farmers who ate the fruit off the wrong tree. They were holy caretakers of this divine space on earth. So the story of the Bible is the story of God not only restoring mankind to right, right relationship, but restoring creation back to its original order. N.T. Wright, who would argue is the world's foremost leading first century historian, and I think probably the most well-known theologian that is alive today, uh, makes an argument that this is not only the subplot, but it is the overarching theme of the Bible, is that the main plot of the Bible is that God is restoring creation back to its original order. I would encourage you if, you know, if you're looking for something to read along these lines, uh, there are some good things that N.T. Wright writes on this subject. Um, it's, I'm working my way slowly through one his, the largest book that he ever wrote. Uh, it's 2,000 pages and I'm reading it very slowly so it's taking a while, but um, the book that I recommend to people 
that Wright wrote is uh, Surprised by Hope. And uh, my friend Steve Schobert <clears throat> talked to me about a year ago. He said, have you read Surprised by Hope? I said, no. He said, you have to read it. He said, you must read this book. He said, read it and come back to me and let's have a conversation. I said, well, I got to get through this book here first before I get there. But my next book there will be Surprised by Hope because it is this exact idea um, that that is our hope, that we as the people of God have so much hope because we are living in the story that God is restoring us back to our original glory. Heaven and earth were divorced when sin entered into the world, and God since that time has been progressively restoring us back to salvation. In the book of Genesis chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a prophecy in the Old Testament telling us about the one who is going to make things right, Jesus Christ. Because God will have a people. You will have one people in the Old Testament. There's not two separate peoples of God. There is one people of God. In the New Testament, the church is the, is, is the, is the Israel. It's the fulfillment of all the promises that were made to Israel. The church finds those promises fulfilled within us. God gave Moses the law for the people of God to follow. It was a placeholder until the promise of Jesus was to come. And the promise was and is the Son of God in human flesh, the person of the Son of God walking among us. Divinity and humanity fused together. God is his father, Mary is his mother. He is both God and he is man. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the first coming of Jesus was not the, the crescendo of God's redemptive act. We don't minimize the incarnation. We celebrate it every year at Christmas. But it was just the first act of God's purpose. It would have two more acts, the coming of God in the Holy Spirit and the coming of God in Christ in the second coming. So this morning, I, I set all that to frame what we're talking about this morning, and that is God coming through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, and while staying with them, he ordered them, Jesus ordered them, don't leave Jerusalem, but I want you to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The first thing that Jesus says in Acts about the Holy Spirit is, it's going to give you power to be my witnesses. So one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit is to empower people to go throughout the earth and be witnesses for Jesus. It challenges us because if the Holy Spirit were to lead any of us, not just myself, but any of us, if the Holy Spirit were to lead us and say, uh, the Spirit of God comes and says, I want you to sell everything you have and I want you to move to, and you pick anywhere in the world. Go to Paris, or go to Zimbabwe, or go to South Africa, or go to New Zealand. 
That's what this is saying. The Holy Spirit is going to empower people to go throughout all the earth. Most people, the vast majority of Christians, will not up and leave their present place. But it is saying that if God calls you to do something like this, are you willing to say, yes, Lord, here I am, send me to wherever in the world I will go? I know a pastor who had a young couple in their church Young couple, just married. They were called to the other side of the world in a dangerous place, and they said, yes, we'll go. The young bride's father was not a believer, and he came to the pastor, and he said, if my daughter does not return, I will come back, and I will kill you. And he was very serious. He didn't see the cost as being justified because he was not a believer. But as believers... What would we say is, yes, I'll go no matter what the cost, because the safest place in the world is at the center of the will of God. If God called somebody into inner city ministry in an area that was just as high of a crime rate as you can and you had small kids, the safest place in the world for that family would be to be there and not anywhere else in the world, because the safest place is in the middle of the will of God. So the Bible is structured in such a way that it reveals truth to us through stories with characters and plots and subplots and mystery and intrigue and conflict and love and war. Have you ever actually read the Bible as a story and to really to see what's there? I mean, there's some, there's some things there that are PG-13 at least. I know, a, I know the new believer and the, and the preacher. The new believer was reading her Bible in bed late one night and called a preacher, a friend of mine in the church, and said, I am reading the story in the Bible. Does this really mean what I think it means? This is something that children shouldn't be reading. She's like, yes, that's actually what it's saying. Um, it doesn't sugarcoat these things. She couldn't believe that that was in the Bible. But these stories are there to tell us about what God is doing. So John Owen, who was one of the greatest preachers of the Puritan era in the 1600s, he wrote in one of his books, he pointed out that the Holy Spirit, that this redemptive work of God that he's doing is revealed to us progressively through God the Father. Now, now follow this train of thought. The work of God, the, the progressive redemptive work that God is doing, is revealed as God reveals himself as God the Father in the Old Testament. We see the Spirit of God working in the Old Testament. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, so we, we see that at work there. We see the New Testament says of the Old Testament that holy men of old spake as they were moved on by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit moves upon men in the Old Testament. So Sometimes people don't realize that the Holy Spirit is at work in the Old Testament. It is, but it is at the background. At the forefront, we see God as God the Father. And this is John Owen pointing this out. In the New Testament, we see God operating through the Incarnation, the Son of God. And in the New Testament, after the Ascension, we see God working through the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the church age. Now, in the Old Testament, the great truth was... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That is the fundamental truth of Scripture. The God that we serve is one. That never changes. It is an eternal truth. 
fundamental to Christianity is that we worship only one God. So anybody who is a Christian, doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what denomination you are, all Christianity will affirm that there is one God. You are outside of the realms of orthodoxy if you reject or deny this. And you say, is there anybody that does this? And I would say there are certain groups that have such a wretched understanding of the Godhead is that they move into what we would call tritheism to where they were making such a separation of these ideas that it's like there's these three guys there's Jeff, Brad, and Doug, and they're sitting around a table trying to come up with a consensus. You know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit were three guys sitting around a table. And so what we must know about God is that there is only one God, meaning there's only one divine will. There's only one consciousness, one divine will of God. And this is fundamental to Christianity. When Christ came, it was a challenge to the people of God. If they were to accept Jesus as the incarnate Son of God, a person in whom all the fullness of deity dwells, are they going to accept Jesus as the Son of God? And they did. The Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, is reworked by Paul. It's masterful what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 8.6. He reworks this to include Jesus into the identity of the one God and yet maintain the idea that there is one God. It is the most... One of the most brilliant and beautiful acts in Scripture, what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 8. <clears throat> Yet for us, this is Paul writing, he's reworking Deuteronomy 6.4. Yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. So far we're in line with Deuteronomy. But what he did, does in the next phrase is he includes Jesus within this identity. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ, and then he says the exact same thing. He says the exact same thing as he said about God the Father, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. One God, and Jesus is included as the one God. And then in the church age, the Holy Spirit is revealed to us as God within us. So the Son is raised from the dead, He ascends into the heavens, He is exalted at the Father's right hand, and from this position of authority and power, Christ sends us the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is within this reality today that we know God. We do not know God through the Incarnation. We've never met Jesus Christ and been able to shake His hand. That was only for about 33 and a half years that people could meet God in that capacity. It was a very limited time. And this is why it's so important <clears throat> to understand what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is how God is revealed to the world today. <clears throat> this does not mean that God sometimes reveals Himself in these three ways. God exists as all three at the same time throughout all eternity, and yet He is only one God. <clears throat> and so the term we use for this, this may be the most important thing I say in this sermon today. To understand God. The term we use for this is divine simplicity. God is simple. Now we hear that phrase sometimes and it's almost an insult. That person, they're, they're a simple person. It's not usually a compliment. That's not what we mean by this. What we mean by God is simple is that He is not made up of parts. He is whole. He is one whole being. He is always God the Father, 
He is always operating as God, as the Son of God. He is always the Holy Spirit. These are not just ways that He reveals Himself to us. It is His nature apart from creation. If God never created anything, it's still how He exists. So we get into this idea of why is divine simplicity so important? And right now, in the church world, this is something that is being talked about a lot, is divine simplicity, that we must understand that there are not three separate centers of consciousness going on up in heaven. It's not three people trying to come up with a consensus about what we're going to do. There is one divine will, one divine consciousness, one divine being that is God. <clears throat> would say, <clears throat> this is not in my notes, I just think it's so important for us to understand that the way that the Godhead has been conceptualized the last 300 years has been against this idea of divine simplicity. And we must recapture the idea that God is one whole being. There is only one God. So Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues like fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. Drop down to verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, seeing it is only the third hour of the day. This is nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So what Peter says is the promise that Jesus gave in the Holy Spirit that you see is also what the Old Testament prophets told us was to come. And in the last days it shall be, <clears throat> God declares, <clears throat> yet another example in Scripture of how we know we are in the last days, because it's when the Spirit is poured out upon all flesh, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit, it's not for certain classes of people. The Holy Spirit is for everybody, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and notable day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." So the era of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the time of the in-between, the giving of the promise of His second coming, and the fulfillment of His second coming. We find ourselves living in this time where the Holy Spirit is a reality among us. What the Holy Spirit does, the person of God as the Holy Spirit, He mediates the reality of us abiding in Christ by allowing the Spirit of Christ to dwell within us. Christianity is the only religion in the world that makes such a radical claim that the God that we serve actually lives inside of our bodies. Paul would say, what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> this is where God comes and dwells. So this is the restoration. Eden is a temple. Sin separates that. 
God tells his people, build, build this tent, and this tent's going to be this wandering temple throughout the wilderness. You're going to pick it up, you're going to move it, but eventually David, your son's going to build a, a tabernacle, a temple. And that temple is going to be worth, in our day, billions of dollars. Probably no building has ever been built since that time that, that could match the glory of, of that first temple. And this is where God's going to dwell, but He's only going to dwell there really one day a year, and only one man a year is going to get to experience this. When Jesus is crucified inside that second temple, <clears throat> the priests are ministering in the temple, and the Bible says the veil that separated the outside of the temple from the most holy place, the veil is rent in two, and it makes it a point to say it's ripped from top to bottom. As it's as if God reached down and tore the veil himself and said, now everybody can come into my presence. And the writer of Hebrews says that the flesh of Jesus that was ripped apart was the same thing as the veil in the temple that was torn apart. That when the flesh of Jesus was ripped open, that's when the veil was torn open. And now everybody can experience the presence of God in their lives. And now we are that temple. You, as a believer, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Islam claims in the Quran that we are very near Allah. But it does not say that He dwells within us. The Quran says we are nearer to Him than His jugular vein, is, is the phrase in the Quran. But it does not teach that Allah dwells within us. It's quite the opposite. Allah is transcendent. He is above all the heavens on the throne. But there is no claim that he could, we could have His Spirit within us. But Christianity makes this bold, audacious, outrageous claim, and we believe correct claim because it's in the Bible, that in Act 1 of the play, God is with us in humanity, but in Act 2 of this play, God gets even closer by dwelling inside of us through the power of His Holy Spirit. And just as God would tabernacle with His people in the Garden of Eden, just as God would tabernacle among His people in the temple, His Shekinah glory would manifest itself upon the mercy seat in the ark in the temple, so now the Holy Spirit, who is not a thing, it's not an object, it is the person of God Himself, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, is tabernacling within every single believer through the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Spirit within you, whom you have from God, Paul said. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I would point out in this context of that statement is that Paul is teaching us that our bodies and how we treat our bodies is very, very important because it's where the Spirit of God is dwelling inside of us. So what is the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> Or maybe we should ask, who is the Holy Spirit? So Paul goes into Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> now I'm going to have to skip some of this if I'm going to do what I said I was going to do, and that's to drill down in the last part that I skipped over before. So central to the work of God's Spirit is the Son of God. When you think of Jesus, think of the Holy Spirit. 
John chapter 3, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. As the children of the Spirit, we are children of the wind. We move in patterns foreign to those who don't walk in the Spirit. Your life will not make much sense to people who do not have the Spirit of God. So I would <clears throat> talk this morning that we have in the Holy Spirit, there are at least seven purposes. This is not exhaustive. You could come up with 20 more. But seven purposes of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And these are key. <clears throat> and we can make each one of these, <clears throat> we can make each one of these a sermon unto themselves. So number one, <clears throat> every believer, every Christian has the Spirit or you are not a Christian. To have the Spirit of God is what it means to be a Christian. This is what Paul teaches in Romans 8. Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Period. End of story. You either have the Spirit of God, or you do not belong to Him. <clears throat> to be a Christian is not primarily an intellectual pursuit. You know by now that I believe in learning. I do more teaching or as much teaching on Sunday mornings as anything because I believe so strongly the importance of us knowing the Word of God. You've got to know God's Word. You cannot exist on feeling alone. You've got to know the Word of God so that your faith stands strong. So that when you don't feel God or you feel like He's a million miles away, you have the knowledge of the Word of God to say, I know I don't feel Him today, but my feelings are irrelevant because when I can't feel Him, I still have to have faith in Him. When I can't trace Him, I've got to be able to trust Him. So I'm going to stand on my knowledge of the Word of God and have faith that God is dwelling inside of me even though I don't feel a thing. I know He's in me because His Word says I am. So I believe in knowing God's Word so I can stand on it. But to be a Christian is still not primarily an intellectual pursuit. Let Scripture get into our minds so it changes how we think. I have known some of the finest Christians that I've ever known in my life who did not have deep understandings of the Scriptures, but they had a tremendous faith in God for what they did know and understand. And I have known people, I have known preachers who have had some of the greatest insight into Scripture, I mean, truly, not just knowledge, but beyond knowledge, insight into Scripture, whose personal lives were an absolute train wreck. Had lost all of the respect and confidence of anybody that ever knew them. Could never stand them to, a, I, I know two men who could have never stood in a pulpit again in their lives, whose knowledge and insight into Scripture were mind-blowing. They could have never stood in a pulpit again because they had no respect for people because of how they conducted their lives. So the two are not always automatically connected. It's no guarantee. We are Christians not because of how much we know. We are Christians because of who we know. God dwells within us. You can know a lot of facts about the Bible. I 
told you before, the greatest Old Testament scholar that is alive today, a very, very old man, but the greatest Old Testament scholar alive, does not believe in Jesus as the Son of God. He's not a Christian. He, see, he was, he was able to know everything about the Old Testament except the one thing in the Old Testament that matters most, and that's it's about Jesus. It's like you knew everything about the Old Testament, but you missed the most important thing. You can say in some sense he knows nothing about the Old Testament because he didn't understand. He never got the revelation, the understanding of what the Old Testament was pointing to. What makes you a Christian is who you know. You can have a lot of facts about the Bible. You can quote Scripture and not have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the person of God dwelling inside of us. That's what makes you a Christian. That's where it starts, not how much you know. Number two, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is here in place of the physical presence of Jesus. He is our helper, our comforter, our counselor, our advocate. John 14, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So remember Jesus just said, we talked about it last week, the last section of Scripture, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus says, I am the truth. All truth flows from the truth. And now he says, oh, and I'm going to send you the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. So the Holy Spirit is here in place of the physical presence of Jesus. You have Jesus inside of you. And just as you could talk to Jesus, if he were here today in the flesh, you could take him out to eat to lunch. You could sit across from the table and have a conversation with Him. You can do that through the Holy Spirit because that is the Spirit of Christ within you. <clears throat> Number three, the Holy Spirit is given to guide us into all truth. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth for He will not speak on His authority. <clears throat> I love it when people like to say, I've got the truth. I know the truth. As if they have all the Bible figured out and they have all understanding and they know God in every way that's possible to know. I still have ideas in the Bible that I wrestle with regularly that I'm not sure where I land on. That I pray the Holy Spirit would guide and lead me into a better understanding. And there's still things that I wrestle with. There's still things I don't know. There's still things I don't understand doesn't mean I'm not a believer. doesn't mean I'm not a Christian. It just means that I don't have everything figured out, and I don't expect to ever in this life have everything figured out. C.S. Lewis said, I think we'll get to the other side, and we'll say, oh, that's what it meant. Oh, that's how it really was. I know people who think they have it all figured out, and it's... It's because the framework that they have is far too, too simple. Um, but what I want is for the Holy Spirit to constantly be leading us into greater areas of truth. Not, and not just doctrinally, but truth about our own lives. So a friend of mine says the greatest gift we can give ourselves is the gift of self-honesty. The Holy Spirit may lead us into knowing ourselves better by revealing things to us about us. This is what repentance is all about. The Holy Spirit inside of our heart is constantly meandering up and down the corridors and the dark hallways and seeing a closet door and knocking on it and opening it. And what do we do? We quickly shut the door and say, Lord, there's nothing to see here. Just keep moving. 
applies because we all have these deep recesses in our souls and our minds that the Holy Spirit is still trying to work things out through. And so the Lord likes to move in. The psalmist said, whatsoever doth make manifest is light, that that light comes into our heart. And as he continues to go, he's opening up doors. And the, the very essence of repentance is for us to be honest enough to say, you know what, I don't have it all figured out and I'm far from perfect and I'm kind of a screw-up in a lot of ways in life, so I still need the Holy Spirit to come in and open up those closet doors and say, I don't like what I see here, but we're going to work on it. We're going to turn on the light, and we're going to clean this out, and we're going to straighten things up. That's what sanctification is all about. That's what becoming more like Jesus is all about. We say we're Christians like we're Christ-like, like we're actually Christ-like, and none of us are actually Christ-like. We're kind of Christ-like. We kind of reflect His image more perfectly. That's why we come to church together, so we can be sanctified. That's why throughout the week we are exposed to His glory, so we can become a little more like Him. It's not about salvation, it's about reflecting His glory more perfectly. So the Holy Spirit is given to guide us into all truth. The Holy Spirit never, ever leads people into error. I don't care if that person you're following or listening to speaks in tongues. I don't care if they lay hands on the sick. I don't care if they pray for dead people and they get up out of the casket. It is not God's validation on their lifestyle, nor my lifestyle, if I don't believe truth. Scripture is the authority that we must submit our lives to. Number four, the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son. John 16, two chapters from where we're at today. He, this is Jesus speaking about the Holy Spirit, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Maybe one of the ways we know the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives is if we see the Holy Spirit declaring to our hearts and minds what Jesus has said. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. First phrase, He will glorify me. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is constantly drawing us back to Jesus and back to His Word. Number five, the Holy Spirit gives us power to be witnesses. We already touched on this in Acts 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The great commission to teach and to baptize people in all the nations cannot be accomplished through mere human effort. The great commission to teach and baptize people in all the nations cannot be accomplished in our own strength. We need the power and the demonstration of the Spirit of God. We have it, and He promised it to us. There's a large debate in the church world about whether or not the operation of the gifts of the Spirit, signs, wonders, miracles, tongues, is for the church today. One of the most impactful articles I've read in the last five years was written by a guy. I don't know him. I've met him, but I don't know him well. But he wrote the article about interviewing a missionary family that is in a hostile country to where if they were found out what they were doing in this country, they would be killed. And what he said is, whether or not the gifts of the Spirit, signs, wonders, and miracles are for the church today is not an academic debate among these missionaries. 
it either happens in their lives every day or they don't live to see another day. He said, this husband and wife leave the house every day not knowing if they will see each other at the end of the day. If he is caught, he will be murdered. If she is caught, worse things will happen to her before she is killed. They live their lives every day in that reality. And the only way that they survive is through the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in their lives every day. The Holy Spirit is here to make us witnesses. We need the power and the demonstration of His Spirit. Number six, the Holy Spirit gives us gifts. And this is where I wanted to hit number six and seven as we close out. Because I want to talk about the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. So in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes about the gifts of the Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit does for some people. Not everybody has all these gifts. Paul lists nine gifts here, but there are other places in Scripture where he lists other ones. So it's not just that there are nine gifts of the Spirit, but these are nine key gifts that the Spirit gives to people. The end of this, he says that people are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each person as he wills. So you have this gift of the Spirit by the will of God, or you don't. And he, can, he stresses in the beginning, there's only one God who gives multiple gifts. For to one is given through the Spirit the gift of the utterance of wisdom. We call this the gift of the word of wisdom. So if you're wanting to be used by God, and I think everybody does, God, use me. How can I be used? You can start with 1 Corinthians 12 and say, I want to start responsibly exercising some of these gifts of the Spirit. And the first one is the gift of the word of wisdom. This is not just, you know, a day without light is like night. This is not like somebody spouting off fortune cookie wisdom, okay? This is true wisdom. This is not somebody that's just giving you great financial advice that I picked up and learned over the years. This is a supernatural empowerment of utterance that comes to a person into your life that does not happen unless the Spirit gives that utterance. I have known people to operate in this gift. I've had people who have spoken in my life who have given wisdom that comes from not from life experience, not because they're so wise. It is truly a gift of the Holy Spirit that speaks wisdom. We should pray for people to speak that into our lives, and we should, I think it's okay for believers to pray for all of these gifts, and then let God decide if He lets you have that gift, if He chooses to operate in that gift. I've had men of God who have spoken to my life that I knew it was the gift of the word of wisdom. To another person, he gives the utterance of knowledge, the gift of the word of knowledge. I know a preacher named Kevin Borders, an evangelist, who before he came back to God was at a house in Oklahoma partying hard. This is a drug house. He is strung out. He's at this house, nobody on the planet knows where he's at. And there's this little old lady, precious saint, back in his home church who's praying for his soul one night, and God gives her, through the gift of the word of knowledge, the phone number to the house that he's at. Like, Do you believe in those things? I absolutely believe in those things. And she calls him. And he gets on the phone, and he's telling the story in a sermon, he's like, how in the world did you know where I was at? 
She said, I didn't know where you were at. She said, I was praying for you and the Lord gave me your number, the house that you were at. Usually great churches are not built by great preachers or pastors. They're usually built by people who are great prayer warriors who never stand in a pulpit. It's the gift of the word of knowledge, people who speak things to you. <clears throat> to another, the gift of faith. Faith is the only thing that is listed as both one of the gifts of the Spirit and one of the fruits of the Spirit. Faith is, faith is what we come to God and it justifies us through faith, miraculous faith. No one was ever saved by praying the sinner's prayer and inviting Jesus into their hearts. That's not Bible. What justifies you is the act of saving faith. And this is a gift of the Spirit. And faith in this instance could be a person who has a supernatural endowment of faith in their life to believe for great things. So we pray for the gift of faith. To another, the gifts of healing by one spirit. There are people who have gifts of healing. Um, I could drive you this morning to the church that he's probably preaching at, and the church he pastors right as we speak. A man who is known to have a gift for laying hands on barren women who could not have children. It was a gift of healing that God had gave him. And why God gives gifts like that, he just, he, Paul said he just individually as he wills, as God sees fit, he gives gifts of healing to another the working of miracles this is usually sought out not just as god giving it to you but by a very unusual lifestyle of prayer and fasting this is and some in this room would know who he is he's been dead for years but he was a legend among us named t.w barnes um, who was a man who a modern day apostle and prophet pastored a small church in rural Louisiana. But story after story, I've known people who've told the stories of where he come from and, and things that he would do. <clears throat> a witch stopped by his office, said, I've put a curse on you, Barnes. You will not sleep until I allow you to sleep. I said, yeah, I don't think so. And Three days later, that woman called. She said, I don't know what you're doing. She said, I have not slept in three days. I'm begging you, please let me sleep. Woman, same type of woman came in his office and said, I'm going to make that ceiling fan turn. She said, I, I can do I want to show you the power that I have. He said, not in my office, you won't. And he said she didn't. The pastor whose wife died in a tragic accident <clears throat> He would receive phone calls at his church, a woman screaming on the phone that she was his wife and she was in the pains and thralls of the fires of hell. And it would just torment him. And he called Brother Barnes. He said, I am so tormented by these phone calls. I don't know what to do. And he said, um, the next time you get that call, and this was 30 years plus ago before caller and ID and all that. He said, next time you get that phone call, <coughs> he said, because the Lord just showed me. Um, where that phone calls are coming from. And he told the preacher, he said, I don't know where this is, but he started describing to what the Lord had showed him. And he said, Brother Barnes, that's my church that you're describing. He said, that's where the call's coming from. He said, the next time that phone rings, put the phone down and walk around your church. He said, the man did, and it was his church secretary that was doing this to him, tormenting this way. Those things don't come by studying a lot. Those things don't come by reading a lot. Those things come by the supernatural infusion of, 
of a gift of the Holy Spirit into a person's life. My pastor who raised me said he was at a camp meeting and they went to get him and Brother Barnes. So there's a woman out here that's demon-possessed. And he said, I thought, well, I'm with Barnes. We should be good. We're going to take care of this. He said, so I, we walked over there, this woman. He said, we prayed for her. He said, my eyes closed. He said, I was just praying and praying. He said, nothing was happening. He said, I opened my eyes. He said, my eyes. He said, Barnes was 30 feet away. He said, he had already walked off. He was done with it. He wasn't going to mess with it. <clears throat> he, he knew when to apply it and when not to apply it. Uh, God raised up men like that in our day who are, have that gift of the working of miracles. To another, the gift of prophecy. This is not just telling the future. In the context that Paul's talking about, it doesn't actually have anything to do with the future. It has to do with speaking utterances as God gives them to you as they are related to people's lives. I think that every single preacher that stands in a pulpit must have the gift of prophecy to be able to say things in his sermon that were not in his notes because the Lord has prompted his mind to say those things that may apply to somebody's life. And this, to me, is what distinguishes teaching from preaching. The difference between teaching and preaching is not telling versus yelling. The difference between teaching and preaching is teaching is the communication of facts. Preaching is taking those same, that same set of knowledge and the Holy Spirit infusing the gift of prophecy and that preacher speaking things during that sermon. And prophecy works outside of the pulpit, but every preacher must be used in that way if he is to preach. To another, the discerning of spirits. <clears throat> we must be able to discern people's spirits, and sometimes God gives people those gifts. Out of all of these gifts, this is the one that I have known that the Lord has graciously bestowed upon me um, for many years is the discerning of spirits. It is more than just reading people. Say, so I can read people. That's not what this is. It's being able to tell, to know a person's, either their spirit or the spirit that is at work around them. I have encountered... In all my years, I've only encountered about five times people that I knew were actually demon-possessed. Um, I counted this morning in my head. And I thought, well, there's been about five times. Some of them were very brief encounters. Some of them were not direct one-on-one -on -one encounters. I remember years ago in a regional church service, there was a woman there. I was in a service. I had never seen her before. She didn't look any different than anybody else. And I looked at her, and she stood out to me, and I said that, that there's a problem there. I don't know what it is. I don't know who she is, but there is a, and I knew what spirit it was. I knew the spirit that she was dealing with, and I've never seen anything like this in my life. At the end of the service, there's an altar call. She was standing against the, the altar or the platform, so it's like up to here on her, and I stood back and watched. I've never seen anything like this. And there was a semicircle behind her, and it was a crowded altar where people were several feet away. She wasn't doing anything. She wasn't saying anything. I don't even know if people were aware, but there was something that she carried that even people who were not that in tune just, I don't even think they knew. They just, sub, just unconsciously, they stayed away from her. And there was a clearing about a perfect semicircle of people just around her and everybody else elbow to elbow. People deal with spirits. 
If you're going to be in kingdom work, you need to be able to discern the spirits of people. I was in Ducoin four years ago in my home church. It's a Sunday morning. During the song service, a woman came up to be prayed for. Some of her family came up around her to pray with her. She was just praying. She wasn't doing anything demonstratively. <clears throat> the pastor and I walked off the platform, down the stairs, went up to her, prayed for her. And as I prayed for her, <clears throat> I <clears throat> said to myself, this woman is demon-possessed. Unmistakably, there was a cloud of darkness that surrounded her that I, you can't, I can't explain it to you. It's a spiritual darkness around this woman that's unlike, it was, it was almost tangible. And I walked up on the platform, I didn't say a word. <clears throat> and Dan, the, the pastor, walked over to me, grabbed my arm, he said, that woman is demon-possessed. I said, I know she is. Why? Because when people deal with those things, they are so, they are so laden, there's just a, a darkness that goes. And it's not common in our society. There's a lot of people who are oppressed. I don't think we see that as common maybe in our society as other societies. But uh, you know, my wife and I were coming out of a mall years ago and we just walked out of the, I think it was a Macy's and walked out of there. And I honestly can't remember if it was a man or a woman, uh, but they turned around and they just turned around and looked at me and they said, Satan! I just turned around and looked at them. I said, Jesus! And just kept on walking. These are, these are things that we deal with, that the spirit world is real. And you will know that in a year and a half, this is probably the first time I've ever talked about it this in depth, because I do not believe in giving Satan glory. I do not believe in calling him out and giving him recognition because he is already defeated for the people of God. If you are an unregenerated, not born again person, you are at the total mercy of those powers of darkness. He is a million times more powerful than you are if you are not in Christ. For the people who are in Christ, he is defeated. It's done. You don't have to pray for Satan to be defeated. He is a defeated foe. That happened at the cross. So we have victory over him today. We do not have to be uh, fearful today. The discerning of spirits. To another, Paul says, he gives various kinds of tongues, the gift of tongues. To another, he gives the interpretation of tongues. There are people who can interpret what is being said when someone speaks in tongues through the utterance of the Holy Spirit. All of these gifts, Paul says, are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And I know I've run over, so I'm going to close real quick with this. Number seven, the Holy Spirit produces the fruit in our lives. I say this as, as last because of all the things that I've said, this is what I hope you would latch on to and take with you today. And to say, God, I want to be used of you in these areas, but what I really want is for the fruit of the Spirit to be produced in my life. Because the fruit of the Spirit, Paul said, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are fruits of the Spirit. And if you see, and I think we all could, see areas 
that I've just read that we are not quite there on, it tells us that the Holy Spirit still has some things to, to unclog and to, to work through. So well, I know people who are full of love that don't have Jesus. You might say, yeah, I don't, yes, I, I, I don't doubt that. I know people who are not believers, who love other people, who do good works. This is something above and beyond that. This is a love that comes only from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, a joy that is not predicated on circumstances, a peace that is not predicated on what's going on in your life. You can be going through a deep, dark valley, and yet because you have the Holy Spirit, the fruit of that Spirit is peace even in the midst of that trial. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And as I say these things, we probably all have people that we've known, great saints, Say so a lot of times they're not preachers. They were just great saints that were in a church, that were wonderful people, that unregenerated probably wouldn't have had any of those characteristics, but because they, were, they had learned to walk in the Spirit, they manifested the fruit of the Spirit. So Paul says, And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So what I would encourage us this morning in closing is to meditate on these things this week. Because when we come together, the idea is that the Word of God that goes forth, that we take the Word of God that we've heard and then we apply it to our lives on a Tuesday morning on the job, on a Thursday afternoon in a grocery store, on a Friday night out with friends, on a Saturday out with family that the word